Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. It's important to recognize that this initiative that we've put together um, since March 16th, our first ever call with the community, all of that is because of you all. The, the fact that we continue to get a consistent amount of great leaders from the community, great individuals from the community joining us every Friday for these calls, thirsty for insight into COVID, what information can we take on and take it back to our community is powerful. So Kimberly and I, we are just, you know, beside ourselves. Like it is, it is such a, a testimony to how much you all want to be able to take this science, take this information and translate it back into your community to promote health and prevent disease and reaffirm what we've been saying, that you are the front line. The doctors and nurses are your last line of defense. But in addition to you, it's individuals like Dr. Sharita Golden, who is our, one of our returning guests, who has made this now podcast and this call just amazing, right? A lot, having leaders come in to talk about the science, but also difficult conversations, right? Like today, we'll touch on health equity, health disparities, and especially around the context of the vaccine. Having trusted leaders, trusted experts come onto this call to disseminate this information is always important. And so, however this community call continues to progress and get out there into the community, it is you all. You all deserve all the praise. Kimberly and I and our jokes are here just to make sure that we can continue helping you. So thank you so much. Great news, Kimberly. Thank you. What a way to kick off the Friday before the weekend. So thank you. With that said, I'm going to go over the numbers, right, keeping us grounded in this conversation about the pandemic. And then I'm going to go over the Johnson & Johnson data that was just released today. So this data by Johnson & Johnson we'll dive into. Actually, let me go to the numbers first, and then we'll come back to the vaccine that, uh, of information that was just released. So where are we with COVID-19 globally? Throughout the world, we have 102,160,181 cases. Mortality is at 2,203,519, giving us a mortality rate of 2.2% globally. Here in the United States, we have 26,343,099 cases with a mortality of 44 million, I'm sorry, 443,837. I apologize about the comma. 443,837, giving us a mortality rate of 1.7%. And here in the state of Maryland, 350,629 cases with a mortality of 6,900, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. These numbers should continue reminding us that while we have a potential tool to help end this pandemic, being the vaccine, we have a ways to go to get it, right? Uh, not only of distribution, resources, and so forth, 
we, we, we have not vaccinated everyone. We still need to continue rolling it out. And I say this because we can't lose sight of the interventions that we know work to stop spreading this virus, from physical distancing to face masks to hand hygiene. Do not stop those hygienic interventions. We have seen other countries throughout the world who are able to put those uh, to, to use to end their own issues with SARS-CoV-2. I was just watching a tennis match in Australia, crowds galore in there because, again, their cases have fallen. These hygienic interventions will save lives. So please don't uh, continue emphasizing them in your community. Now, this morning, Kimberly was one of the first. She sends me a text message and she goes, I just heard Johnson & Johnson released their vaccine data. And sure enough, we want to make sure our listeners are up to date with what this data means and what it says for us moving forward. So I went to the NIH's website. A good summary is there. Keep in mind, Moderna and Pfizer did a very similar thing. They released preliminary data uh, into their uh, last part of the research trial before then submitting it to the FDA for emergency approval. So more thorough information about this vaccine from Johnson & Johnson will likely come out in the next week or two as they submit to the FDA. Moderna and Pfizer's was about 50-some pages long. I'm assuming Johnson & Johnson's will be as long. But for right now, let me give you the brief insight that they released that the NIH and other media outlets, of course, but NIH, you know, being a great trusted resource, this is what they've summarized based on their reports. So Johnson & Johnson, practicality. It is a single injection, injection, yes, which right off the bat seems a little bit more practical for the general population as compared to Moderna and Pfizer, which are two vaccines, uh, uh, two, two doses. Also, this can be stored in refrigerators for months, which, again, adds a little bit more practicality. Uh, Pfizer needs very cold, cold uh, temperatures, right, refrigerators that are specially made for them. Moderna, a little bit... Uh, less cold, but still in very freezing temperatures, John, Johnson & Johnson seems to be a little bit more practical. So especially for those clinics in rural areas that can't afford or can't get those refrigerations, those freezers in time, Johnson & Johnson might be a little bit more practical. The technology here is a little bit different from Moderna and Pfizer. Moderna and Pfizer, remember, gives us genetic material to make our cells make the protein, the spike protein of the virus, right? Johnson & Johnson does it a little bit different. It takes a virus that causes no harm to human beings, called an adenovirus, if you want to feed to your friends, but don't, don't feel like you have to commit it to memory. It takes an adenovirus, and in it puts the spike protein. Then the adenovirus comes into our bodies, and similar, if you... If our listeners have ever seen the movie Lion King, where they lift the uh, lion up on the cliff, a uh, little Simba, to present him to the rest of the uh, community, that's kind of what the adenovirus does here. It kind of lifts the spike protein and presents it to our, our cells, who then can uh, make more antibodies, the immune memory to it. If that visual is helpful, great. If not, I apologize. Maybe I get you all to watch Lion King. It's a good movie. Now, so that's the practicality and how it works. It, we put a spike protein into a virus that causes no harm to us, and that virus presents the spike protein to our 
immune cells. Now, for what you are all ready to listen to, does it work? All right, let's walk through that. First, you should know that this trial recruited 44,325 adults, 18 and older, into the trial. Moderna and Pfizer, same thing. They recruited somewhere between 40 and 50,000. So just as much uh, adults recruited as Pfizer and Moderna. Where were they recruited from? 44% were enrolled here in the United States. Now, ethnic and racial breakdowns have not been given yet, so when that comes out, we'll let you know. Uh, as you remember, Dr. Bumpus, who was on a few weeks ago, praised Pfizer and Moderna for recruiting about 10% African-Americans and 25% Hispanic Latinos for both Pfizer and Moderna. So when the racial breakdown and ethnic breakdown comes out, we'll let you know. However, so 44% came from the U.S., 41% came from uh, Central and South America, and then the remaining 15% came from uh, South Africa. Now, with that said, how did it do? How did it do? So good news, and just it's a perspective to some extent. So they found that the, their vaccine was 66% effective in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 at 28 days after getting the vaccine shot. And you may say to yourself, wasn't Pfizer and Moderna like 94, 95%? They were. So 66% isn't the knockout that we saw with Moderna and Pfizer, but it is still a good tool to have. The other thing that I will say is they found it to be 85% effective in preventing severe critical life-threatening COVID-19. And remember, that's what the vaccines are trying to do. They're trying to prevent severe disease, life-threatening disease. So it might not be the knockout punch that we want that Moderna and Pfizer gave us with their 94, 95% efficacy. However, it's a good tool to have in a time like this. I will also say, well, what's great about this study is two more things. One, the fact that it occurred in South Africa means it took into context a little bit of the South African variant that we are seeing. And what these researchers found was that across the geographic region, this uh, vaccine was 72% effective in the U.S. for preventing moderate to severe COVID, mainly because the U.S. is dealing more with the older uh, versions of SARS-CoV-2. But in South Africa, it was about 57%. The new, it didn't seem to be as effective against the new strain of the South African variant of SARS-CoV-2. So more to come, more to come. The last part, they also showed that it wasn't as effective in patients living with HIV. And a majority of them came from South Africa. Now keep in mind, when they release more data, I'll go through it thoroughly and make sure we can have a little bit more answers to those numbers that I just gave you. I, so if you're gonna ask more numbers about the Johnson & Johnson, I'm giving you as much as we have at this moment. So more to come. I promise you, you all will be some of the first to hear about it. But good news nonetheless, we have a new tool available, hopefully in the next few weeks. Not as good as a knockout punch as uh, Pfizer Moderna, but still as an important tool moving forward. So with that said, I'm going to leave plenty of time for our amazing guest today, Dr. Sharita Golden. I'm going to let Kimberly introduce her. But I've got to tell you all, Dr. Golden is, if you ever think of what type of doctor you hope every doctor is like, 
every doctor models themselves after, for me, the answer is always going to be Dr. Sharita Golden. So you all, our listeners, are in for a treat for our guest today. Kimberly, I turn it over to you for introductions. I don't think I can beat that introduction, but to, to, but just officially to reintroduce um, Dr. Sharita Golden. Uh, she is the Professor of Medicine and Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer here at Johns Hopkins Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Golden, and thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. Um, so before we begin, uh, would you mind briefly introducing yourself to our audience? A little bit more detail into what I said. Sure. So, um, so I'm Dr. Sharita Golden. Um, I currently serve as Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer for Johns Hopkins Medicine. So I oversee our um, workforce diversity and inclusion efforts for our School of Medicine and our health system, and also all of our health equity operations for the health system, which have been um, quite a few, as you can imagine, during the COVID pandemic. Um, and also engage with our government and community affairs office in helping to support um, advocacy for um, the needs of our um, community in Baltimore um, City, as well as the state of Maryland as they relate to, um, to our health. And I am the proud mother of um, a 21-year-old um, son, Andrew Golden, who is a senior studying journalism and African-American studies at um, Northwestern University, and my husband, I'm Dr. Christopher Golden is a neonatologist on the pediatrics faculty at Hopkins. So that's my personal introduction. <laughs> no, no we, we love that. Dr. Golden, yeah, you know, uh, last week we had Dr. Jackie Jennings on, and she too, to our listeners, revealed, you know, her own personal backgrounds as well, uh, being a daughter of a Chilean mother and so forth. And what I love is you're continuing that without being prompted to, making this personal because these community leaders listening to this call you know, they've all become family. So thank you for that. Thank you for making sure you recognize you're part of this family with us. Uh, so thank you for that. And I imagine Andrew's probably blushing somewhere uh, at this moment. If he's awake, he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Dr. Golden, we have you here. And the first question I want to pose to you is, you know, science, great, we have this vaccine. And then, and then the next conversation is, all right, we have to tell the community about it and so forth. But for much of the community here in Baltimore and elsewhere, it's not just knowing the science, right? For them, it is, at the same time, they're struggling with trust, okay. right? From their standpoint, here it is again, medicine coming up with something, you know, are they feeling like they're being researched on again? Or as some people have put it, are, are we being guinea pigs again? Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Golden, can you touch on that, where explaining the science isn't just enough? There are communities that are struggling with trust. Can you discuss kind of that context of what that means for some of our communities? Yes. Yeah, so it's such an important aspect of things because, um, you know, we can understand the science, but then we've actually got to deal with people's hearts and spirits as they begin to, to think about, about this. And, you know, I think one of the important things is to, is to acknowledge that this is a concern and it's justifiable. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I hear a lot of people say is that, um, and you all can't see me, I'm an African-American woman, um, but one of the things that people will say is, well, it's just that minoritized communities don't trust the medical system. And if you think about even that, that phrasing, it puts the burden on the community 
when in fact it's that the healthcare system has violated their trust in the past. And so therefore it's incumbent upon us then to restore that trust. And so I think the first thing to say is to acknowledge it and say you're, you're, you're right that, um, you know, the, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was, um, was, was, te- was terrible, you know, to, um, so it's not that those men in, that, in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment were injected with syphilis, but it's that they already had naturally acquired syphilis, but they were not given treatment with penicillin, which would have cured them from syphilis. So therefore, you know, they suffered the consequences others in their family suffered. Um, now, fortunately, today there are protections in place for participation in research. Um, there's the whole informed consent process. So nothing can be do, done to any of us in a research setting or a clinical care setting without our permission. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, th- th- that, is, that is there. So it is important, you know, for us to acknowledge that that is there. Um, but I also want to even, I think I'll share this by sharing my own personal journey to making my decision about the vaccine. Um, I think in this particular case, there is probably a little more distrust potentially because of the speed at which the vaccine was developed. Um, And, you know, some of that was politicized in many ways. Um, And so one of the things that I had to do for myself, and I must admit, you know, even though I'm a physician and I've taken like every vaccine that's ever been recommended to me, I was... I was a little concerned initially and had a little hesitance, um, and it was primarily because of the speed issue. And so one of the things that I did during the Thanksgiving holiday, because I couldn't have the 20 people at my house I normally would, and because we were, you know, we were being doing a safe Thanksgiving, so I was just cooking for three people, so things were simpler. And while things were baking in the oven, you know, I pulled out the stack of journal articles I had next to my sofa and began to read and educate myself about what Operation Warp Speed was and what it meant. So I began to understand that um, none of the corners were cut, but that it was that the money that was needed to do the clinical trials and start production of the vaccine once it looked promising was really um, pretty much um, committed up front from the government as well as from private industry so that, you know, normally we go through different phases of a trial the phase one, phase two, and phase three, and that process typically takes years, you know, five to six years. But what happened here is because people are dying so quickly um, is that the money was invested up front so that once phase one looked promising, they could move right to phase two, and then once phase two started, they could move right to phase three. And so, you know, as things look promising, we could rapidly move ahead to the next phase. And so, and then in looking at the actual clinical trials, um, they were huge. So both for the Pfizer and Moderna trial, and you just heard about Johnson & Johnson, the Pfizer trial had 40,000 participants. The Moderna trial had 30,000. So these were very large studies, you know, recruited people from the U.S. and around the world. Um, and so that gave me a little, uh, much more confidence that these trials were all done correctly. Like that's the size of a trial that we would normally have to test a vaccine. And the reason that we could do those trials so quickly and recruit last summer is, again, because the resources were put up front to allow us to recruit quickly. So that just understanding that helped me, that there were no corners cut and that it was still the usual 
clinical trial processes that we always follow that are required before you bring anything to the um, Food and Drug Administration. And then I think it was helpful for me to understand that while the mRNA technology used in those two vaccines is new, in fact, it's been developed over about nine to 10 years, specifically for the purpose of being able to rapidly develop a vaccine if we were in a setting um, where we had a pandemic. So if you think about it, you know, we've had threats of pandemics before. There was like the Middle Eastern acute respiratory virus, and then, you know, we've had others. There was another um, SARS virus, you know, maybe about nine or ten years ago. But those ended up being more contained and did not become global pandemics like COVID-19 has become. So that began to have researchers think about if we're ever in a situation where there is a, an infection that's out of control like this, how could we quickly develop a vaccine? And that's what the mRNA technology allowed us to do. So this was just the first time we had a pandemic where we could put it to use. And so for me, all of those things were helpful intellectually. And then I'll tell you the things that finally tugged at my heartstrings. Um, so my parents both were blessed to turn 85 last year. And I go down every two weeks. They live in Prince George's County, Maryland, to help them with various things. And, you know, I began to realize that I was planning whether I go to the grocery store or do anything around my visits to them because I didn't want to expose myself and take something to them. And then the week before, a couple of weeks before Christmas, my husband's two best friends from medical school, her both black pediatricians, um, one in Tennessee and one in Texas, both got COVID, and one was severely ill enough that he was hospitalized. And that was the day that my husband and I both realized that this is killing our black and brown communities, regardless of socioeconomic status, and we wanted to do what we could to protect ourselves and our family. So, you know, that was sort of how I, I, had, I, I could totally resonate and identify with those trust issues and concerns. At the same time, I realized that we, I both know people on my side of the family and my husband's side who've gotten COVID and survived or gotten COVID and died, and that there were what I do know about COVID is much more concerning to me than what I didn't know about the vaccine. So that, that may have been a long answer to your question, um, Dr. G, but, but that I thought sharing my own experience of overcoming that mistrust and concern might be helpful to some of our community. No, it, it 100% is, Dr. Golden. And a lot of times, you know, uh, science, you know, the trust conversation, I, I agree with, with how you answered it because, Science is objective. It, it can't win people over because you don't know its intentions and the other subjectivity. So sometimes hearing someone's narrative of how you said yes, uh -huh. that's powerful. So I love it. I'm going to add one. Well, I'm going to ask you an additional question. And I, this one, I apologize if it's a curveball. You, you discussed why you decided to get the vaccine. And it, again, great answer. The step prior to that was I remember sitting in meetings back in July and August with colleagues that we all know who are involved with vaccine research, right? Dr. Bumpus was one of them, Dr. Zunnelman. Mm -hmm. And I see this because what would your approach be for that purpose? You know, because from my standpoint, I always felt like we get a, a lot of reserve from going out to discuss research that may involve recruitment because of that trust conversation. But at the same time, we don't want to say, all right, well, they're not going to trust us. We're not going to go out. No, we want to be able to at least get that messaging out, even if they turn us down, at least they were given the opportunity. 
So from the research standpoint, I see this because we might be in other pandemics in the future. I hope not. Right. How would you talk to the community about research and enrollment? What would you say? So I think it's crucially important. So one of the so one of the other questions I had was were there people in the clinical trials that look like me? You know, I wanted to know how many black people were in the trial, how many Hispanic people were in the trial. So, you know, when I looked at those data, that was also helpful to me because um, in both the Pfizer and Moderna trials, um, about 10% of the um, participants were black. They were all recruited from the United States. Um, and so in the Pfizer trial, that was 4,000 people. In the Moderna trial, that was 3,000. So I, I felt like um, that at least I was represented in those trials. And I have spoken with um, and heard from two clinical trial participants, one during a panel discussion that uh, my uh, sorority put on back in December. And she's interesting. She's a journalist, and um, she's a breast cancer survivor. And she felt that she had benefited from breast cancer treatments where people had participated in trials, and she felt like her participation in this trial was an act of service to others, particularly those um, um, in her in her community, for her, it was her African-American community. Um, and Dr. Freeman Herbowski, who's the um, president of University of Maryland, Baltimore County, um, similarly participated in the trials, you know, as an, as an act of, um, of service because we need to make sure that these vaccines work for our community. And we need to make sure that our voices are heard as the research and the science is being designed. So I think that's critically important. No, great, great points, Dr. Bolden, great points. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, when we emphasize science, it's got to be matched with community engagement, community perspective. We can't undo the past, but we certainly can write a new uh, set of chapters for the future. And voices like yours and leadership like yours uh, are incredibly meaningful um, in a time like this and in times for the future. But, uh, Dr. Bolden, I imagine you are ready for um, a non-pandemic world at some point in time. Um, so uh, more, more to come. My, my last question when I pose, and I'm saying this because we're getting a good deal of questions coming in from the community, some that I know we just may not be able to answer, um, just because of the, uh, so much going on in the sense of the, 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 there are probably questions more for the future. But my last question at the moment is, so we got the vaccines, right? Science has gotten us there. We're, we're doing our best with rollout. And I know a lot of this is not in your hands, but for community members who probably, you know, the inability for them to get to them, to access the vaccine, may come across as a, a slight to them. Mm -hmm. any, any words you can say for this, for this moment in time where we're struggling to get vaccines to everyone? Um, and again, I know a lot of it is out of your hands, Dr. Golden, but at the same time, we just got their trust. They said they'll take the vaccine, and now they're seeing it's hard for me to get access to it, and we don't want to have that mitigate the trust buildup that you just had. Yes. Anything that you can say to our community members for this moment? So what I would suggest is, um, you know, like in some of your churches and community organizations, if you, because um, right now, you know, in the state of Maryland, the focus is on those 65 and older. Um, and so, you know, many of them may have challenges with the technology. So, like, I signed, you know, I have, I have, I have to sign my parents up for things like this, for example. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, sort of developing a process whereby, 
you know, some um, individuals who are comfortable with technology can support and, and assist with signing up those who, who aren't as comfortable. Um, also, for our um, elder individuals who aren't driving, um, you know, setting up um, sort of, you know, carpool service to take people to get their appointments. But I think one of the things that we've been doing at Johns Hopkins Medicine and I've been doing personally is, you know, is we have to really advocate to the state to make accessibility a priority and allow people to be able to get the vaccine um, even through some means that aren't as electronic or being able to, for example, you know, go to the pharmacy and get your shot just like we do for the flu shot and then have somebody be able to, um, you know, record your information that way. And I think that as we nationally have a larger availability of the vaccine, then we'll be in a position to do that more. One of the challenges currently is just we still have limited supply, um, but I know the current administration um, is in the process of purchasing more doses. Um, and so with, as, as more doses are purchased, then we'll be able to um, be able to think about more unique ways to disseminate. And I believe that we're going to have to, just like we did with COVID-19 testing, we're going to have to go to the community with the vaccine and figure out how to do that. So, you know, as you were alluding to, Dr. G, earlier, um, you know, for some of the vaccines that don't require the deep freeze and those things, you know, that, those may be easier to distribute in a mobile way. But, but my understanding is you can also ride around with deep refrigerators <laughs> if needed um, to, to get this done. So we're going to have to be much more creative, um, just like we had to do with COVID testing. I think we're going to have to use those same strategies. No, I, I agree, Dr. Golden. And not, not to share this in a way to make us at all jealous. Um, so my, uh, my, mother, uh, my mother's uh, Greek. She came from Greece. She was an immigrant. Uh, but she goes back to Greece to kind of spend her golden years during the summer. Um, and she goes to a kind of a retirement community there. And um, her friends let her know that the way the retirement community, was about, about close to 10,000 people living there, are getting vaccines is that uh, everyone's driving up to their house and giving it to the elders there. Uh, the average age of that community is 82, right? Wow. So older Greek populations, and my heart's like, why, we, we, we could do that here in the U.S., you know, drive up and give the vaccine. So, right, and um, actually, you know, there are, so we do have some partnerships, you know, Johns Hopkins Medicine has some partnerships that, you know, that our ability as, as a health system to vaccinate is, um, you know, is clearly linked to the supply that we get from the state. But we do have a plan to, um, you know, do vaccinations in um, some, our, some of our senior housing complexes for the reasons that you just mentioned. So using Excellent. our GO teams to go, if you will, to those <laughs> because people have, you know, to, to remove the transportation barrier and other barriers. So those are things that we are organizing as an organization. Of course, of course. Dr. Golden, we have a few community questions coming in. But I, it's up to you if you want to tackle this question, uh, and that way we can leave time. But you discussed earlier, like, you have to advocate for the community, both, both like we are doing now with these calls, all the way up to legislation. Mm -hmm. Do you, are you allowed to say any comments about what you were doing Tuesday afternoon, um, advocating for some health, health equity conversations? I mean, I think I can because somebody wrote about it in the newspaper. <laughs> so, okay. Um, but, you know, but, so one of the things that became very clear during COVID um, very early on, and I don't have to tell those of you on this call 
uh, was how um, our um, black, Hispanic, and indigenous communities were just being disproportionately impacted with infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. And a lot of those, um, the reasons, though, were, were, were sort of things that existed before COVID that many of us who work in the community know about. So the housing insecurity, the lack of access to healthy food, lack of, um, you know, places to, um, to exercise and have safe physical activity, um, as well as the biases that exist in the healthcare system that we that we talked about. So, um, so our government and community affairs office and my office have been collaborating with some of our Maryland um, state legislators who are very passionate around, um, you know, the the issues of of health inequities. And um, so, Speaker um, Jones has declared, you know, racism as a public health crisis and you know, really has released a, a sort of a, a anti-racism agenda in a series of legislation. Um, and so some of the bill, one of the bills in that legislation is one that would be focused on, um, you know, requiring um, unconscious bias training for healthcare providers as a part of their, you know, licensure process. And again, unconscious bias is not a magic bullet, but it, it really does um, open everyone's eyes to their biases so that they can figure out why is it that I think that black people have a higher pain threshold, so therefore I don't treat their pain adequately. You know, I just assume they're drug-seeking. Like how, how we can begin to undo, um, you know, those biases so that patients can have better outcomes. So, so I was invited um, when the bill was presented um, to the, um, the House um, Government and um, uh, Health and Government Operations Committee, um, you know, Delegate um, Jocelyn Pena-Malnick is um, the leader um, of that bill, and so she, um, I was fortunate to be able to give testimony um, to support that bill, um, and the Maryland Hospital Association and MedCi also testified in support of that bill. So, you know, we are really trying to use our voice to begin to really directly address the issues that are really at the root of some of the inequities that we see. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Golden. And I, I did see the article written, so that's why I thought, like, it must be okay for you to make a comment, but um, w thank you so much. I mean, you, you from your personal story that you shared in the beginning to even telling us about Andrew um, to all the way to your advocacy. Um, listeners, uh, Dr. Golden is a, a champion, um, one that we need more of. And Dr. Golden probably agrees. She wishes she had multiple clones of herself to tackle so many things that um, – are put forward for her, but thank you for always being our, our, our advocate, Dr. Golden. Sure. We have, uh, we have a few community questions. Kimberly, do you want to uh, begin tackling them with us? Absolutely. Thank you. So um, some of them may or may not be able to address, but uh, we'll see what we can do. Uh, the first one, are reactions, or more specifically adverse reactions, more prevalent to Pfizer or the Moderna vaccinations, or about the same? Yes, yeah, so they're about they're about the same. Um, you know, is my understanding. And Dr. G can chime in, but they're they're very they're similar reactions. So the soreness of the arm at the injection site. I got my first shot. I had soreness for a couple of days. For me, it was similar to what I get after I get the flu shot. Um, and um, and and then typically more so with the second dose than the first. You know, you, you may have fatigue, fever, chills, muscle aches, um, and that goes away after a, a couple of days. Um, that's a sign that your, uh, your body is generating the immune response, so that's a bit of a good thing. So 
you know, after I got my first shot, I was um, I was tired the next day and had a mild headache, and then after that it was gone. But it's the same side effects and very similar prevalence. Yeah, and, and I would agree with uh, Dr. Golden. Um, you, you, you will, especially the second shot, I felt uh, fatigued. Um, my, my wife actually felt uh, chilled uh, for, uh, overnight. So it, it's to, to my listeners, uh, to our listeners, what we try to say is it's kind of like after you leave the gym, you, you really feel like, hey, uh, your body's gone through a lot. The same notion here with the vaccine, um, you'll, you'll have a, an impact. But it's rather com- uh, comparable between Pfizer and Moderna. Um, Kimberly, you're also welcome to weigh in as well uh, uh, if you want. Uh, not putting you out there, but you did get vaccinated too. If you want to share a little bit of uh, what you went through. Yeah, absolutely. So I had I've had the first shot of the Moderna, um, and again, as Dr. Golden said, usually when I get the flu shot, I usually get um, some flu-like symptoms temporarily. Same thing with this, with the arm soreness. Um, felt some chills, some aches. Um, but about five or six hours later, I was, uh, as I mentioned last week, I was on my stationary bike, so I was good to go. So, but I am prepared for my next shot um, in two weeks for maybe a little bit more um, side effects, as of, again, as I do with the flu shot. So, but looking forward to it. Um, so the next question, um, do you have, and these are getting a little bit more difficult, um, but do you have insight as to what is causing the disparity between the percentage of shots the state has distributed to county health departments and hospitals versus the percentage of doses administered? And let me know if you need me to repeat that. Yeah, no, I, uh, I actually, I think I understand the question. Um, can't answer it fully um, from the the sort of the Department of, of Health standpoint because, you know, we as a health system have gotten an allocation from the state and then the county health departments get an allocation as well. Um, and so um, I, I'm not quite certain what the reason is. I think part of it is figuring out, again, how to make sure that you're getting those doses to the right communities. So, you know, I I know for us at Johns Hopkins Medicine, you know, we're trying to make sure that we have doses available for, you know, our most marginalized communities. So, you know, we want to set aside a certain number of doses for, you know, our clinics that we know are taking care of people that have difficulty with, who would have difficulty accessing the vaccine through other means. you know, but that's a small number. That's a small number relative to the whole number that we will set aside. You know, I just can't speak completely to what the you know what what the reason is for the discrepancy that we're seeing between the state and what what the state has given and what the the, the health departments are administering. Thank you. Um, the next one again um, might be a little bit uh, difficult to answer, but what steps? do the county health departments, hospitals, and the state need to take to improve the organization and efficiency of the administration process to get, quote, unquote, shots in the arms, as Governor Hogan says, more quickly? And again, let me know if you need me to repeat that. No, again, well, it, you know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and... I mean, so this is just my opinion. 
that's on the other Dr. G's opinion, if you will, since I'm a Dr. G as well, Dr. Golden. But I think it's really important to make sure that there is the um, person power to be able to, because, um, you know, for example, if, every, if all of our sign-up and everything is electronic, but you've got people that are in the digital divide or are unable to access, and that means you need, like, personnel to help them sign up and make appointments. And so, you know, we need to be able to have the resources to get to make those things happen. And, again, also really thinking about how to support, um, you know, mobile vaccination sites that will actually go into the community, you know, where people already exist. And so that is a different operation, um, you know, than having everybody sign up and either go to a health department declared site or to a pharmacy. So I think it's going to be a matter of, you're sort of having two or three different parallel operational processes in the state to get the vaccine to people. And I think that they are still um, working through that. And, um, and also, I think, um, you know, having more clarity about, you know, how much the state is actually getting um, from the federal government, you know, sort of getting that whole workflow so you know each week what's going to happen. So, you know, we've been in a transition um, federally, so hopefully those things will become a much more um, seamless in the next in the next few weeks. And that you, I, I wasn't even thinking of that. You're right. We have two Dr. G's, so I'll <laughs> say Dr. PG and Dr. SG's. <laughs> so. Love it, love it. Though, though I think Dr. Golden, your your last name might be a little bit harder than mine to say. <laughs> I can say yours, so Galliot Santos. I've been practicing. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and this question, I think, um, should be a little bit uh, easier to, to answer is, um, will Johns Hopkins notify its patients through MyChart about vaccine appointments, or should patients send messages through MyChart requesting appointments? So excellent question. Um, so they will receive notices from MyChart. So, um, you know, so there isn't a need, it's not a need to call. So what has happened is if you are, um, 65 and over, and you have an active MyChart account, then when your ticket gets pulled, you'll get a notification. Um, you'll, you'll get a MyChart notification. Like, it'll come to whatever email you have linked to your MyChart. And then you can sign in and make your appointment. Okay, perfect. Thank you. I knew that one was a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So um, there, we do have a couple minutes left, and I was wondering, Dr. Golden, um, I was on a call last week um, where they shared some information um, from different uh, studies about some mis mis misinformation that's um, been going around um, social media and focus groups. I was wondering if I could just get your thoughts on two of them, if you wouldn't mind sharing um, with the group. Is that okay? Sure, that's fine. Um, so the first one um, is about uh, this myth about there's a live virus in the vaccine that you're right. actually getting injected with the COVID. Yeah. So there, so there's there's not a live virus, and and quite honestly, that made me much more comfortable taking the vaccine, knowing that it wasn't a live virus. You know, some of our vaccines have, you know, live virus or what they call attenuated. Um, so this one does not. What this vaccine does is um, that it basically is um, what's in the injection is the the mRNA that allows 
our own body to make the spike protein. So, you know, the coronavirus, corona stands for crown. So all the pictures you've seen of coronavirus have these little spiky things sticking up on it. And so what happens is that our, um, what happens is when that mRNA enters our cell, it makes a little bit of that spike protein, and our body says, wait a minute, that spike protein is not a part of um, Sharita's cells. That's something foreign, and it, so it triggers your body to make an immune response to that spike protein. The mRNA that made the spike protein degrades. It goes away. It doesn't incorporate into your DNA or stay in your cells. But you now have these antibodies, so the next time that your body sees the whole coronavirus, like say you get exposed somewhere out in public, then those antibodies will be triggered to kill the coronavirus and keep you from getting, um, you know, sick with, severely ill with it. So, um, so it's not the, it, it, it doesn't cause your body to make the whole coronavirus and it's not a live virus that you get injected with. Basically what it's doing is giving your body the blueprint to make that spike protein to stimulate an immune response without you having to have be exposed to the whole virus. So, um, and I will say that that was one thing that made me feel more comfortable about this vaccine. Okay. That's a great explanation. Thank you. Um, and the second one is about DNA modification and the thought that the vaccine would change our genetic code. Have you heard about that one? I have heard about that, and so um, so I heard a, and I heard a really good explanation that was was very helpful. Um, and maybe I could share the link to the video if I can find it. But um, but the, you know, so our cells have um, you know mRNA, and then in the nucleus of our cell in the center is where our DNA is, and so that is like pretty much our body's master plan. So if you think about it, like you're building a house. Um, you know, and so when you're building a house, you, you have your blueprint that has everything laid out there. This is where the various rooms are going and everything. This is what the design is going to look like. That's what our DNA does. It's sort of like, you know, it's like the blueprint, the floor plan, how everything in your body will be laid out. But then um, in order to figure out but how do we translate, like, that blueprint into actual, you know, proteins and other things our body needs, that's when that's where the mRNA comes in, and so the mRNA basically are like the contractor. So like you have these plans, you have the blueprint, but if you're going to actually build a house, you need to give the blueprint to a contractor so they can actually make the house. And so that's what the mRNA is doing. It's sort of making the house, so it's like making that spike protein, but it never gets into the nucleus. The mRNA never goes into your nucleus, so it doesn't change anything about your DNA. And in fact, that mRNA is degrade it once it makes the protein. And that's true for all the proteins that are made in our body. That's the purpose of the mRNA. So, um, so this does not um, integrate into or change um, our DNA. That's an amazing explanation. Thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate you addressing this too. So um, Dr. G1 and 2, uh, any closing comments before we wrap up the call with our uh, thoughts, closing thoughts and prayer? Dr. Bolden, you go first. Um, I don't. I don't think I have any. I just. Um, first of all, thank you all for tuning in and listening, and um, you know, for being a part of the dialogue. And I think it's just really important to me and to others that I work with to make sure that we're um, giving our community the right information to make the right decisions for their health and themselves and their family. And um, 
you know, and, and just, you know, thinking about, at least for me, how the scripture informs this, is as I, as I thought about the importance of wearing a mask and washing my hands and physically distancing and taking the vaccine, I feel like that's been, you know, part of my ministry as a way to be my brother's keeper and make sure I keep my community safe. I'm just going to add that point that uh, Dr. Golden said, keeping our community safe, that's valuable. We will present you to the science, but as Dr. Golden has laid out, you've got to have an understanding of the humanity of the community. Keep our community safe. Dr. Golden, your words, I'm just echoing them. Strong, amazing, amazing call today. Excellent. Happy to participate. Um, I like to, uh, he uses, Dr. G uses, uh, Galiatsadis uses amazing all the time, so you just stole my word, so I'm going to have to come up with a new word. But that was fantastic, and thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Golden, for joining us again. I really appreciate it. And before I turn this over to Reverend Johnson, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call, scheduled for Friday, February 5th at 11 a.m., February 5th is also National Wear Red Day, and on this day in February, which is considered American Heart Month, everyone across the country dons the color red in order to raise and spread awareness and hopes to help eradicate heart disease and stroke in millions of women all over the nation. So we hope to kind of uh, discuss, tie in the cardio, uh, cardiovascular and COVID-19 in our conversation for next week. Um, but also next Friday, wear your reddest red, whether it be a pair of pants, a scarf, a mask, or your favorite hat. Paint the city red, but safely, of course. So now for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer our closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you so much, Kimberly, and good morning to everyone. And thank you, Dr. Golden and Dr. G, uh, for your um, informational and inspiring words. And thank you all for staying on the line, those of you who chose to, for this short um, period of meditation uh, and prayer. So I shared these thoughts with you. During my undergraduate college days at the University of Virginia, I was privileged to have the experience of spending a summer in Muncie, Indiana, as a research assistant to a professor who was doing a social and cultural history study. One weekend, I decided to take a train to visit a friend who lived in Chicago. Being from the East Coast, I was used to long-distance travel, whether by train, car, or bus, involving hills and valleys, twists and turns, trees and billboards, especially on my treks between Baltimore and Charlottesville. There was always something to keep my interest. As the train, however, moved swiftly and smoothly between Muncie and Chicago, I stared out of the window only to see vast, empty plains, no hills, no valleys, no turns or twists, just straight track and flat, plain vistas as far as the eye could see. I started missing the familiar hills and valleys, the familiar sights that helped entertain and reassure me along my usual route. In actuality, however, uh, what was happening is that I was missing the opportunity for a new experience, new sights, and new insight as I was forced to view and experience the world from a different perspective. I had become so engrossed in longing for the familiar and therefore so anxious to reach my final destination that I was missing the journey. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a similar experience for many of us. It has caused us to miss our normal perspectives and experiences, those things that were familiar and comfortable and reassuring. 
It has forced us, even against our will, to view life and the world through a different lens and from a new or different perspective. What a tragedy it will be if when this portion of our journey is over, we would be the same as we were when it began, having missed the opportunity for a deeper introspection, the opportunity for new insights, the opportunity for new understanding, the experience of really knowing our families and helping our neighbors and appreciating our nation and understanding just how intertwined we are as a global community. Different shades, skin tones, genders, languages, and cultures, but one blood all susceptible to the same natural calamities, needing each other to survive. My prayer is that we not be so blinded by our anxiousness to return to our norm that we miss seeing and experiencing facets of this journey that can carry us forward to a brighter future. And so I pray, gracious God, who, when we allow, maps our life's journey and helps us to navigate our way, help us, we pray, to take time to utilize all of our senses to experience and learn from the varied ways you lead us on this journey of life so that we might not only become richer for the journey, but that we might also enrich others along the way. Thank you, O oh God. In your loving name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Reverend Johnson, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a great and safe weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.